Hi, I'm Rochelle Jackson, and this is The Crime Couch. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author, and I know who's who in the zoo. The crims, the cops, and the interesting individuals in between. So get comfy and join me here on The Crime Couch. It's going to be one heck of a journey. Alan Pleitner was a young detective senior constable in Victoria Police's homicide squad when Melbourne's waterfront war was raging. He'd grown up in the country and worked as a young constable in the inner city. Alan did 36 years in the job, retiring as a detective superintendent. I interviewed Alan when writing Billy the Texan Longley's biography in 2003. Alan was working when painter and docker's boss, Pat Shannon, was murdered at the Druids Hotel on October 17, 1973. He and his partner, Detective Senior Sergeant Barry O'Brien, arrested one of the three crims, Alfred Connell, involved in the Pat Shannon shooting and later charged him with murder. So what rank did you hold when you were involved in... Senior Constable, Detective Senior Constable. And that would have been, what, around about October the 17th, 1973? Yep. Yep. I got promoted to sergeant in, it was November or December 73. Were you with the Homicide Squad then? Where were you stationed? I was in, with the Homicide Squad uh, from July 71 until I got promoted in 73. What are your memories, Alan, of the night, if you indeed can remember what you were doing on that night that Pat Shannon was shot at the Druids Hotel? Mostly I was working on completing some other uh, investigations and preparing for a trial of um, another young person named Nabba because the trial started on about the 18th, I think, of October. Um, a person or called Nabba? Hmm? What was the person, sorry? Nabba, Um And so... I was wrapping up uh, a lot of uh, jobs. Uh, there was another one, I can't remember the name of it. Um, lady, lady was murdered. We kind of we ended up charging. And that was all around the same time. We, I think we were pretty busy all around that time. Our team from memory was on a, on a day shift, but well, certainly I was. We had a revolving roster. And so one week in four you do three afternoon shifts, uh, which was Saturday, Thursday, Tuesday. And those afternoon shifts you were then responsible for overnight on call and anything turning up the next morning till 3 p.m. the next day was your job. Well, 3 p.m. the afternoon shift started the next crew and they performed jobs from 3 p.m. onwards. Mm-hmm. And Saturday when you were, no, I'm sorry, it was Monday, Wednesday, Friday afternoon shifts because Saturday you came in, you were, then you were the duty crew through to um, Saturday 3 o'clock, the afternoon came in, then they worked the weekend. And so one week were all day shifts. Another week we sprinkled it on afternoon shift for 
to on the shoes here. And so you had this this run of, of a regular shift work. And I think from memory, our shift was almost day shift that week. We must have been the on-call crew coming into Saturday. Only because on the Friday night, which is the date that was, early in the morning we'd, uh, we'd um, caught up with Kevin Taylor and he was charged, but I, I wasn't involved in charging him or interviewing him from memory. On the Friday night, we caught up with, uh, no, it wasn't, that was a Saturday. So it must have caught him on a Saturday morning. Then the Saturday night, we caught up with Elfie Connell. Mm -hmm. We worked late. We were going to roll over to third place on a Sunday morning. And I lived in Thomastown. The other crews were coming from southern suburbs. I was on the way in by myself. And coming down High Street in Preston, the um, 24 called, called for one of our cars. And uh, I have no answer. I think I might have said when I've got a job in the northern suburbs. So I answered that. And I went then to Heidelberg, to Athlete Street, Heidelberg, where um, a lady had shot her husband. So I dealt with that job on Sunday and locked up that woman mid-afternoon, Sunday afternoon from memory. And then that afternoon evening, we then got a call to a, um, a little kid, I don't know, 18-month, two-year-old, who'd been found at the bottom of cliffs or down near Morty Alley, just back this way a bit, not saying what the suburbs are there. And so we rolled straight on to investigate that. So some other crew must have dealt with Harding at the same time as I was dealing with the other woman. Mm -hmm. Because um, I ended up having one of the local detectives come in and sitting on the interview that I did with that woman while the other fellows processed the Harding. And what do you remember thinking when you heard that Pat Turner had been shot? Only that it's a just a continuation of what had been happening. And it was only a matter of every now and again you had an eruption that they didn't want to talk about, they felt they were dealing with things. And so what it was was I think that back earlier there'd been a few things said and done that uh, people carried some grievances that they'd iron out themselves down the track. You know, it happened every now and again down there in the dry dock and so forth. But Saying there'd be a disappearance or an unexplained, no, sorry, a sudden death, which was either open ended or, or perhaps accidental. I say that only on the basis that some things look like accidents, but you may guess they're not. But you, you never ever had witnesses, and it was very difficult to do justice to the poor deceased because. If he'd been alive and somebody else had been dead, he would have told you nothing too. It was just the way of the world. Why do you think Pat Shannon was shot? Did you have any theory? Oh, no, I can't recall now. Um, but I think somebody 
more knowledgeable of the situation and, and a better memory of the situation than I would probably be able to explain to you two different camps. And I can't remember who was on whose side, but there was, um, going back a bit before this, I think from memory, there was a power struggle over who managed the painters and dockers. And because there was a fair sort of earner that we had in terms. Um, and while these things you could never prove them because you could never get any packs, the dogs barked too often for there not to be a rabbit around. So there was good money to be made by them without having to work too them and hard. So there was a power struggle and uh, I think some of the older hands won out again. Uh, and I think that all it was was that there was still some of this animosity that carried over and carried over because of stages it was almost a tit for tat. You chop down one of my trees, I'll chop down one of yours. You take a picket off my fence, I'll take a picket off your fence. And uh, I think that as well there might have been a bit of personal, not just professional, but personal animosity among some of them for old grievances or something because the Patty Nose Nichols was on one side. Jimmy Bosley was on Bill Longley's side. Yeah, yeah. We well, see, that was sort of the remains of was with, from my memory of it. Jim was not really a P&D per se, even though many of the buggers didn't do any work. They were still P&Ds. And so you had, to some degree, I suppose, you could be honest, very young and in the country and worked in the country and well I've worked four years at Collingwood this is fairly different I almost had the, the gun token men on one side and the blokes who shoot you on the other and that's how it was that it seemed to work out because um, I think from memory out of the whole thing they elbowed Billy out and don't come back and Jimmy Baisley went slinking off to, to do uh, drug deals and so forth or work for the drug dealers. So I think you, you know, you had that sort of situation that uh, the all was about who manages the monies around the docks. But whilst I was around when Ferret Nelson went down and Costello, that's the one I was trying to think about in the Eastern Freeway. I never really worked on those because we had our own. So unless the, the working of the squad at that time was that unless the team responsible for the investigation weren't doing too well. You never really got terribly involved with their job because you had plenty of your own. It was only when you got to a situation where team boss would say, listen, it's time we had a conference and then we'd have a whole squad conference and one of the investigating team would brief the whole squad of what was and what had been. And then You'd expect them to come back with questions and possibilities. You've thought of this, you've checked that, have you done this either? To stimulate the thinking again, to look for new new avenues. Mm -hmm. And so that occurred uh, with a number of jobs that we worked on mm -hmm. that were difficult. On a number of these, um, you didn't because you never really had much information to throw around. How important was someone like Shannon, do you think, in the painters and dockers at that stage? He was a union secretary. Yeah, that, that in itself makes him pretty important because that implies their ability to manage. And of course, the ability to manage their membership means that they can start them or stop them. 
and it's okay to start them, but the commercial world doesn't like to stop them. And so that meant that everything being negotiable, he was pretty powerful. about someone like Billy Longley? Do you remember, do you have much sort of knowledge or do you remember sort of what the feeling was at that stage in the job about someone like him? Oh, not really, uh, except that he was a fellow with a reputation uh, of uh, the capacity for violence, that he was a professional crook and that uh, he was a professional crook who was prepared to back up whatever he meant or mentioned and on that basis uh, you know he was like Jimmy Baisley not the same as a bloke like Frankie Bayless or Bayless as they know the call but similar to him and that or some like Big Bobby Johansson from out Collingwood he didn't upset Big Bob but if Big Bob got upset with you and said you'll get a flogging you got a flogging so there were fellows that people didn't go out of their way to upset. If you did, you were stupid. And if they said they'd do something, they did it. And that was to my recollection. And that that's limited because, as I say, he was south of the river. And I, I haven't worked south of the river. Well, I've never worked south of the river except on specific jobs when I'm sent to a murders or stick-ups or something like that. Or, my knowledge of of, uh, of that culture or that milieu is limited. How would you describe Alan in those days in '73? Because it said this was a quote from the Age in the last couple of years. They said this was from a paper in those times, and it stated that there were at least four prominent painters and dockers that had been shot. Union officers in cars were burned, and the home of Billy Longley's was also bombed. How would you describe those sort of days? I don't know, tumultuous is not a right term because that implies a much broader upheaval. Um, because, see, in all that, no matter that you can list a heap of things that occurred, uh, the actions or the outbursts were fairly well targeted. Most times, in those days, most times those professionals would never harm the next door. They wouldn't harm families. They'd knock off this bloke or that bloke. But they'd never touch the wife and kids. So it was strictly a man's world and strictly a crook's world that you had those eruptions in. So it's, I find difficult to sort of, to sort of fit one word to it. Pat Shannon said at one stage that they catch and kill, or we catch and kill our own. Yeah, pretty accurate, pretty accurate, because that's exactly what it was. I don't recall out of this any innocent passerby or bystander being harmed. They had a very strong code, and Billy still does in that sense. Oh, yeah, the, the old... Mm. I've had a, a current police officer who says... He categorises crooks in two ways. He says there's good crooks and there's bad crooks. And he said that he would define Bill as being a good crook because he said he, he is extremely loyal and he did have a code of ethics, which he said, you know, today's crooks don't have. Oh, very true. 
very true, that latter part of your statement, I don't know whether there's good crooks and bad crooks, I won't go that far. But I mentioned Bobby Johansson before, uh, but I could mention others that I knew from out in the northern suburbs who, who had that code. So that was perhaps that part of self-preservation, don't forget, because if you have a dispute with a bloke in those days, you went and you knocked that bloke or you belted that bloke, you didn't touch the family, because otherwise somebody would come and upset your family at home. Now, despite everything else, uh, many of these, many of these blokes um, still just wanted to provide for their families. They mightn't be the classic family man, as you described, but they kept on giving a quid to the old lady. So if a bloke went in, you know, there was, uh, they were quite quick at ripping around to pull up a quid, to use their term, ripping around to pull up a quid. Very quickly, if somebody went, had a bit of bad luck, they'd quickly run a bogus raffle or put on a barrel and people had to turn up and so forth. And they'd go to the publicans and they'd get their barrels so that there was a quid to go home to mum. And uh, mum at least have a few grand to help us through a, a trouble. A tough times. Yeah. Uh, and that was, that's no, that's, sentimentality, that is self-preservation. You know, it goes back to the, the law of the jungle, you know, the preservation of the species. We'll look after them because one day these blokes might have to look after mine. And so uh, that was the way it was. It was, but see, you've got, you've got different sorts of crooks nowadays. You've got crooks that don't have any ethic. Hard word to use, I suppose, in one way. Or difficult choice of word. But many of them, um, Nowadays, I uh, haven't been brought up with any common understanding of, of what it means to be be part of a system, of a style of life. And so many of them are sticking stuff in their arms and so forth. They wouldn't know anyway. Many of them have just become crooks because they're bloody rebels. They're not bred into them. Um, you know, the, the Canes, one of the earliest I locked up was Les, Les Kane, who was a junior constable at the Kane family. Grew up with a, a, a certain culture. I dare not use the word ethics because that's inappropriate, but they grew up with a certain expectation of this is how behaviour is. And even though there might be. It's a set of rules, isn't it? It basically is. Like not written, but a set of rules. Yeah, it's a set of rules for their society so that they can somehow coexist. The same as you have laws to allow us to coexist. We know what side of the road to drive on or what colour light to stop at or whatever. So they just had they had their own rules for their roadway. How difficult was it for police in those days to investigate Shannon's murder and why? Very difficult because any to solve any crime, an investigator needs to be told something. Doesn't matter whether you're told this is who did it, or I saw a car, or I heard this. You need to be told something. In that world, the, the getting that telling is almost no hope because most times, if somebody's going to do a serious crime in that league, in that mix of people, then they're not the sort of people who go talking about it. 
they only talk with those that need to be talked to. So you don't get that spillover. You find... It's like a code of silence, isn't it? Yeah, it's smart operating. See, it reminded me the other day, they had um, Gregory Smith, now also extraordinaire. I worked and uh, my team called Greg for all these stick-ups. They're very, very smart, very intelligent. Person, they're very dumb because uh, he was into, into dope and so forth and so people knew that he was moving around with this money and so somebody talked and somebody eventually said hey look at this bloke and eventually we caught him and, and locked him up that sort of crime investigation is quite different to trying to investigate something where you've got PNDs similarly we sometimes you have language differences that again is a lot I remember investigating murder once, um, which um, well, the nationality was Romanian or something, and uh, we never ever solved it. I reckon I know who did it, but we never ever solved it because you just couldn't get that word out because the whole culture, as well as language, was you don't say anything. That's right. Well, in those days, according to what Bill says to me, you didn't see on any, even the coppers. If you got a flogging, you, if your lawyer said to you the next day, well, Gal Valley off the to him, what an ass happened to you? And he said, well, yeah, I fell down the stairs. You didn't fizz on anyone. Yeah. Was that, was that how difficult it was to get oh, yeah. extract information? Yeah, yeah, you, you just gave nobody nothing. Um, an instance of that was, uh, again, I mentioned Bobby Johansson, big, strong fellow. Bobby got shot at one stage out at Collingwood. And we were talking to Bobby later on about some other things. And uh, it was put to Bobby, they tell me that Frankie Ballas shot you. Bobby said, people say all sorts of things. And uh, the bloke I was working with said, he didn't do too good a job. Well, Bobby said, bloody hard to shoot straight when you're shooting over your shoulder running away. <laughs> so he'd never say that Frankie shot him, mm. but because we weren't investigating that, that was Bobby's way of saying, don't worry about it. But even, you know, uh, I remember another time we investigated another shooting out there, and I, it was all around the same time. And uh, this bloke turned up at St. Vincent's Hospital with bullet wounds in him. Right now, Croft, and he'd been shot from fairly close range. So I know what he'd tell us time of day. You know, if he'd been carrying a grandfather clock into the hospital, he wouldn't have told us the time. That was just how it was. And yet he was a bloke of only, I don't know, 23, 24, 25. But it was bred into him, you know. Just don't say nothing about it. And, and that was the culture they lived with. That was the code they worked on. The, you don't tell nobody nothing. You don't fizz. So there were two teams involved from the Homicide Squad regarding Shannon. Was that beneficial or did you sort of double up? I remember you talking about that. No, I was trying to think the other day. I think it was only only uh, the, the need for personnel because uh, when the information came up, of course, they'd named three prime suspects. And when you're looking at gathering them up. You don't want to pick up one today, one tomorrow, one the next, can you pick them all up at one time because... 
So this is their chance of collaboration. Yeah, yeah well, collaboration. So you then say, well, hold on, we need to have some extra personnel. And so you draw on an extra team or two. And then it's only a matter of who's available, who's got the least amount of work on at the time, you know, normal competing interests. So, um, Was that helpful in the Shannon investigation to be doing that? Oh, yeah, nothing wrong with it. Um, I'll put it that way because it was just a standard practice when you had a, a reasonable roundup to do, you, you went and got your resources properly briefed. There's no real difficulty with that. Uh, because being properly briefed, they should know within limitations, and I say that not deliberate limitations, but normal limitations of conveyance of information. Um, you, you bring them up to scratch as much as is possible. So I know what the hell they're talking about. If they happen to get to follow on a different line, that's where you are. So it, it's better standard stuff. And of course, I say that you're used to briefing other teams anyway. Thanks for joining me. I'm Rochelle Jackson, and I look forward to your company next time.